The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I will read Luke 5, verses 12 through 26. Please follow along. Hear God's word. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things this day. This is God's holy word. A woman named Susan was only 32 when her lymphoma cancer was diagnosed as being in a rather advanced stage. She had been a Christian since childhood and a wife for three years, not yet a mother, Medical tests and consultations left her and her husband stunned to realize that this could be the end of Susan's life. And then came, of course, the treatments, the chemotherapy that ravaged her energy and her hair and her entire spirit. And if that wasn't enough, 
then the friends of Job showed up. I mean the friends of Job from her local church. Christians came thinking they would minister to Susan. First came a woman who, with her Bible in hand, earnestly suggested that Susan must be harboring some deep, unconfessed sin, because God would not bring such a punishment upon her unless that were the case. And so she urged Susan to repent and left her in a state of considerable guilt. Next came a deacon who informed her that all she needed to do was have a strong and vigorous faith. God didn't want anyone to be ill. And so if she would simply name her healing and with all her heart claim it before God, it would certainly be delivered to her. Well, then came a young couple, and and these two were her best friends, and she thought, at least I'll get some better comfort from them. And they did bring happy talk and flowers and some laughs and things that cheered Susan up, but the moment anything about her sickness got near to the surface, she noticed that they stared at each other in a way that showed they were kind of afraid of the subject and didn't tend to discuss it. And then they beat a hasty retreat without ever acknowledging her illness. And so Susan was comfortless from her Christian friends. She got no encouragement from them, and she turned to her husband, and they turned together to the Lord and said, why, oh God, why? Why us? Is there healing? Could it be? Would you give it to us? Well, you cannot read the ministry of Jesus without quickly being impressed with both the number and variety of healings he was involved in. Particularly in the early phases of his ministry, demonic exorcisms, lepers being cleansed, blind people getting their sight, deaf hearing, fevers banished, paralyzed, made to walk, and even dead persons raised to life. These things are dramatic and astonishing. And Dr. Luke, the physician, who was not someone naive about what was involved in disease and its healing, brings us these things and makes us an eyewitness of them. I think one of the sore black eyes on contemporary Christianity are those who use the airwaves, the TV, and other media to communicate unbiblical messages in this area of the Bible and healing. I have no fear to name some of them as false prophets. Robert Tilton, Kenneth Hagin, Ken and Gloria Copeland, Benny Hinn, and there are others whose theme is God wants everybody well. And if you're not well, you just haven't figured out yet the kind of faith that you need to show to claim what God wants to do in your life. And oh, by the way, don't forget to send your check to my ministry. We must combat error with the truth of the Bible. Jesus Christ is the great physician. He does heal. He heals through many of the wonders that he, he has allowed science to discover and use, things in our day that are purely astonishing. Within the lifetimes of, of many of us, we can see how medicine has advanced and is able to do things that were unthinkable just a generation ago. 
And these are enablements of God. And also things that medicine cannot explain. And I know people in this congregation who have had severe illness diagnosed. And people have prayed, and and time has gone by, and they would go back to a doctor who says, I don't understand. Your tumor's gone. And things that we must say, God has worked, and God has done something inexplicable to man's science. But the problem comes when we try to program these things. And when we try to put healings on demand, I have joined many times since being pastor of this church with our other pastors and elders as we have responded to requests in people's lives and come in the manner of James 5 to gather around and pray and anoint with oil and pray for healing. And we're very careful to explain to people when we do that that this isn't a a magic ritual. There's nothing superstitious being done here. It's the power of prayer that is important. And there have been times when we have prayed for people that way, and there have been amazing responses. Things really changed in the lives. And there are other times, and I think particularly of our former pastor, the man who preceded me in this pulpit, Robert Williamson. Twice the elders came around and prayed for Bob in his cancer. And Bob languished, and he went home to the Lord without recovering. Are we left on those kinds of occasions to say, well, we failed. I guess we didn't press the faith button hard enough or accurately, or or we did something wrong. While no less zealous prayer was offered for others who recovered in remarkable ways. Well, this is a big subject, of course, in the Bible, and we can't say everything that would pertain to healing in the Scripture today, but I want to springboard from these two instances we see in Luke chapter 5 today to bring you to see a couple of things that I hope would be helpful to you, and that you might put your concerns for physical health and healing into a right perspective beside a deeper spiritual core of your life where you most desperately need to be healed and where God will heal you. It's his guarantee. In the first place today, we need to know that healing miracles of Jesus were never done as ends unto themselves. Jesus didn't do healing miracles simply to impress people or to build up his reputation as a prophet from God. Actually, you might glance back to the previous chapter. I'm not going to spend much time on it, but just see the little incident there in verse 31 and following of Luke 4, where he meets an evil spirit having taken possession of a man in Capernaum who's in the synagogue shrieking and screaming and recognizing Jesus for what he was. I was thinking about this this past week and wondering if the experience of this demon confronting the Son of God was anything like the surprise of Osama bin Laden finding Navy SEALs in his bedroom in the middle of the night. There's a sense in which this demon was shrieking, why do you invade my domain, you holy one of God? For he recognized that here was the living power of God in his midst and there to confront and even cast out and defeat what he was about. 
The Scripture tells us, as best we have any diagnosis, is that there was no disease in the world before there was sin. There was no human death before there was sin. Romans 5.12 says, sin entered the world and death came along through sin. And so we would believe the Bible is teaching that humanity's susceptibility and liability to all kinds of disease from the common cold to the worst kind of cancer or strokes or whatever it may be, all are part of that huge realm of our fallenness, our brokenness in this world. Had there been no fall, there would have been no disease. But we have to be very careful because right away some people are liable to say, well, then that means if I'm ill, it's because of some specific sin. And they are going to thrash themselves and look and search and say, for what sin is God punishing me here? When that may not be the case at all. We need to think of the fall and and of sin and its effects on humanity as it's an ugly picture or illustration, but it's a bit like, a, like all the sewers of the world overflowing so that we all have shoes covered with sewage. We can't escape it. And it isn't that I sinned and therefore I have cancer. Now, James 5 does urge the sick person to confess his sins, and that, that may be something he needs to deal with indeed. But I think nowhere are we taught that one-to-one sin brings disease as a punishment. No, that disease and all of the ills we have are part of the collateral damage, you might want to call them, of a broken and fallen world. Well, if we ask why then did Jesus do healings in the first place, I think we can give some helpful answer there. First of all, his healings authenticated and certified him to be God's Messiah. Acts 2.22 says as much, that he was a man attested by God by way of miracles, wonders, and signs which God performed in him. If he is God on earth, he's going to have power to do things that no man can normally do. John 5.26 has Jesus say, Believe me for the very works I do, because they bear witness that the Father has sent me. So healing miracles were a wake-up call, in a sense, to human society to say, look, here is God in your midst in all his power. But secondly, and, and it's related to the first, healings illustrated physically and outwardly what God does for people inwardly and spiritually. He makes us whole in our souls and spirits, and, and bodily healing is just a manifestation that would get your attention and make you be drawn to him to learn that deeper truth. Jesus truly is a great physician. He redeems us by his blood, rescues us from sin and death, and the Scripture says we are to believe we have a whole new life because of that. We are actually new creations, even while we live in this world, still susceptible to bodily ailments and death itself. Nevertheless, we have a life, the life of Christ in us, that is everlasting in nature. And so it's as though healings of Jesus were like God's great big billboards announcing to the world, my life force is loose in the world now to combat and defeat the reign of death. Healing miracles pointed to the greater works of the cross in healing souls. Well, secondly, we come directly into our text here then, and these two incidences 
First, the, the man who was a leper, and secondly, the man who was a paralytic. Verses 12 to 16 shows us this leper and teaches this point, I think. I state the point as a question. Since we will acknowledge Christ's power over disease, will we also trust His sovereign will in the matter of disease? This leper had what is called Hansen's disease or leprosy. Uh, the old superstition was that somehow leprosy was, was a terribly infectious thing that kind of rotted your skin and your, the appendages of your body. Uh, modern science has shown that's not the case. What it actually does is attack the nervous system and kill nerve centers so that you have no pain sensors. Now, you wouldn't know the destruction you can do to yourself if pain didn't save you from doing it. Your fingers could easily go into boiling water and you wouldn't even know it, and you'd ruin the skin of your fingers or, or sharp objects would, would cut you or something, and, and you don't even have any idea what you're doing to yourself. That's what happened to lepers' bodies. That's what caused them to be so deformed in a way to people that they were called unclean and they were socially outcast. So it was a social dimension as well as a, a physical illness. The, the, the leper was a totally isolated person living a terrible life. Well, here comes this man in verse 12 who says to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The longer I, I ponder that statement of his, I realize what a wonderful statement it is. Because the man is coming not doubting the capability or power of God, only asking what his will is. He's saying, Lord, I believe you can heal me. I have no doubt about that. Will you? Is it your desire? Is it your plan to, to heal me? And the text says, and I, you know, I'm reading between the lines, but I picture Jesus with a, a wonderful smile on his face. And and notice that even before he spoke, it says he reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. Be clean. You don't touch a leper in biblical times. You did not touch a leper. You made yourself unclean ritually and ceremonially to do that. Jesus touched him before he even spoke to him and said, I am. I'm willing. Be clean. Well, wouldn't we love it if we could say that that God's will is every single time for every single illness to be struck down and banished. That's what the faith healers on TV tell us. Unfortunately, it doesn't square with Scripture. We think of Job, who was struck with sores from head to foot that he scraped with a piece of pottery. So terrible they were for him to endure. And God let him endure in that for a period of time while he cried out in misery. We think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 as he lists many sufferings, including that famous thorn in the flesh that nobody's ever been able to identify what it was, epilepsy, eyesight, something wrong, some persistent limiting illness that Paul prayed, Lord, take it away, Lord, take it away, Lord, take it away. And the apostle Paul did not prevail in that prayer. God said, no, I will that you continue in it and learn my power in your weakness. There was that incident in John 9.3 when disciples of Jesus saw a man, a beggar, born blind, never had seen anything. And, and they assumed everything that some people wrongly assume and said, Lord, who sinned there? 
him or his parents that he was born blind. And Jesus said, no, you, you haven't got your theology right at all. It isn't a matter of who sinned. This happened, Jesus said, so the work of God might be displayed in his life. Amazingly, the Scriptures teach that God can display his, his work, his power, in the life of people who have to live with afflictions and infirmity and disease. It's not always a matter of who failed. Unless you're ready to draw the conclusion that God failed or that godly people just don't know the right formula for prayer or something, you have to accept the hard lesson that in the unknowable purposes of God, we call them inscrutable. There's a $5 vocabulary word for you kids. It means unknowable, hidden, known only to God. It purposes that He has that do make sense, and there is a plan involved, but we don't know it, and we can't see it. In his inscrutable purposes, God says you can learn things on a sickbed that you might only learn in that place. You can learn things with a bodily handicap. You might only learn that way. And disease and pain is certainly an unwelcome schoolmaster, but it it does teach us to depend on the grace of God as few other things can do. This leper gives us a wonderful posture for ourselves to pray about healing in our lives. We should pray exactly what he prayed. Lord, I believe in your power. I know you could heal me. I, you're the God of the universe. You're the creator. I know you could do this. But will you? Is it according to your will? That I don't know. And that, Lord, I, I bring to you, and I'm willing to let it rest at your feet. Will you heal me? And implicitly, we have to say, if not, then teach me to be content. Teach me to walk with you. I urge you to reject that sorcerer's gospel that looks for the Christian magic wand to wave over your life with abracadabra, you know, to make all your bodily ills go away. That's a fool's gospel. It's not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel comes sometimes in very hard words. I think some of the most courageous words of faith that there are anywhere are words of Job. The statement he made never fails to astonish me when he held on to God in the midst of all his suffering and said, although he, God, slay me, I will still trust in him. Although he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Thirdly, this morning, Look at the last portion of our text, verses 17 to 26. This colorful little drama of the paralyzed man let down on his mat through the hole in the roof. You know this story. I think this is actually the first sermon I ever preached as a college student doing supply preaching. I was flipping through my Bible. What in the world will I preach about? And I picked up this familiar story from Sunday school and preached about the paralytic lowered through the roof. It's a colorful incident. It, it highlights the faith of the friends and everything else. That's all. Those are all good points. But I'm going to take you just to the, the central core lesson of this. Because this third point is this, that Jesus aims to grant us deep healing at the very root of our human need. Now, you would say that any bystander present there knew what this man needed, right? 
People were crowding in. You couldn't even get in the door of the house where Jesus was teaching. And they were bringing their sick one after another to to get healing. These fellows somehow got up on the roof and vandalized the roof. They were willing to take on the cost of roof repair, I guess, to open up a hole and let this fellow down. And here he is on his mat, dropped to the ground in front of Jesus. Did anyone present have any doubt what that man needed? He needed to be able to walk. But do you know what? Jesus didn't get it. What was wrong with Jesus? He's the only person there that didn't see that as the number one thing this man needed. Because Jesus, although he did end up saying, rise and walk, first said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And boy, did that start a buzz. And Jesus knew it would. All the scholars, what is he talking about? Only God can forgive sins. Of course, Jesus knew only God could forgive sins, and he was God. And he did forgive sin. Jesus knew that forgiveness might not be the thing that was being sought, but it was the thing that was most desperately needed. It's more than 80 years ago now that a great hero of mine in the Christian faith, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, left his career in his late 20s, a promising career as a physician at a London hospital where he was actually the assistant to a doctor named Lord Horder. Lord Horder was the king's physician. Martin Lloyd-Jones was his brilliant assistant, a brilliant diagnostician, heralded as a young man who, whose career would go as high as it could possibly go in London medical circles. Except Martin Lloyd-Jones left that career to go back to his native Wales and become a pastor in a small coastal blue-collar church preaching the gospel. And Lloyd-Jones, and this is certainly not denigration of the medical profession, of course it's not, But Lloyd-Jones said, I found that after I had been used to help heal the human body, I still had not touched what was really wrong with people. And he saw God's call for him as being a call to preach. Notice the words of Jesus in verse 23 when he said, which is easier? Should I say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, he said both of them. But his point was, I said the hard thing first. I said what is, in fact, the impossible thing to the powers of man, healing the wounds of sin-sick souls. Alongside that cure, everything else that medicine does, wonderful as it is, and we thank God for our medical professionals and what they can do to comfort our lives and prolong our lives and everything else. And yet, alongside this cure, of forgiving sin in an eternal way. Everything that medical science can do is really nothing but a band-aid. And Jesus says, if you would only ask me to cure your physical body, your request just doesn't go deep enough. You don't need a, a magician God who's like a genie summoned out of a bottle to say, cure me, oh God, I just found out I have cancer. Cure me, cure me, please, please, please. You need a Savior who can forgive you eternally. 
wash you clean, lay his hands upon the leprosy of your sin and take upon himself your uncleanness and grant you his righteous cleansing. And that's what Jesus does. Isaiah 53 predicted it a long time before he ever appeared in this world. Isaiah wrote, Isaiah 53, 3 and 4, Surely he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with our suffering. He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, and by his wounds we are healed. That last phrase isn't just about curing cancer or recovering from a stroke. It's about the wound that came to you from the Garden of Eden onward. We need a God who will dig right down to the source of our original illness and take what's most wrong with us upon himself. In the cross of Christ, that was accomplished. A once-for-all healing in the atonement of the blood of Jesus of your fundamental disease of sin and death. And we do enjoy the first installment of that healing. We do. We live lives today that are peaceful and joyful and purposeful, even though, oh, we don't have those resurrection bodies yet. But we're assured that we will by the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus up, living in us and assuring us that that new creation will come that day when Revelation says there will be no more death, no more mourning, crying, pain, when that old order of things will have finally passed away, and it will. And so for us, the question is not whether a Christian's body can be healed or made whole. The question is only when. Can you trust yourself unconditionally to the all-knowing will of a great physician who understands and doles out to you what is right in his eternal plan. Can you echo quadriplegic Johnny Erickson Tata, who hasn't moved her own legs in over 40 years? As she said once, in Christ, I really am healed today. It's just going to be a few short decades yet before my body realizes it. Thanks be to God for his power over sin and disease and death. Our Father, I pray for those who are struggling with this in an acute way, folks who have real health problems in their lives. They may be saying, why me? Why now? Can you take it away, Lord? Please take it away. We do pray, O God, that you bring healing by your wonderful power and by the use of all medical skill where that is your plan and your destiny. And we do not know why that would be so that in some cases it would would go in a stunning way and others not at all. But we ask that you teach us a trust like that leprous man who came and said, I know you can. I'll wait and find out whether you will. And we know we will not wait forever, for you've already done everything necessary for our true and deepest healing. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.